I've been thinking a lot, Caitlin, about our conversation last season with Father James Martin. Do you remember it? I do. I've gone back and listened to it a couple times. I specifically remember that Father Martin said he wanted to get some soup dumplings with us. We talked a lot about soup dumplings on that episode. Mm -hmm. And we are still down for soup dumplings, Father Martin. Yes. But also, he mentioned two things that New Yorkers most often come to him wanting to talk about. And there are things that we have been talking about a lot as well. Last week, we tackled loneliness. This week, we're tackling homelessness. It seems as the days get shorter, our moods get more somber. Tis the season for seasonal depression and Mariah Carey. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women working out our faith with fear and trembling in the big city. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Our producer actually didn't want us to do this episode. He thought it might be a bit of a downer. You know, there's he has a point, but we want to assure you, Jonathan, we will be back to talking about online dating and demons before you know it. The thing is, though, when you live in New York City and probably any big city, you are forced to reckon with the issue of homelessness on a daily or near daily basis. You can't avoid it. Mm-hmm. For a lot of New Yorkers, especially people of faith, it really drives home the question for all of us, what am I supposed to do? Right. We feel like we're not always sure what is truly helpful and actually not helpful when we encounter homeless people. Should we give money? Should we give food? We have a lot of options and not entirely sure which is the best or truly the most helpful in encountering our homeless neighbors. But then the question for me was, what is my relationship going to be with the people who are experiencing homelessness that live in my neighborhood who I see over and over again. Like, Mm. and that's where I feel like I've gotten really hung up and I don't know what to do is like, do I learn people's names? Do I stop and talk? Do I bring a cup of coffee? Like I see people doing that and interacting with the people who are on the streets regularly, but it is It's a complicated question. Well, there are so many complicated questions in this. And I think the tensions that we have to live in as New Yorkers around this just are exhausting in a lot of ways and they don't go away. And we have to figure out a way to live that's in line with our faith and with our values. It's certainly not something that we feel like we can just ignore. Right. They're pretty strong biblical commands to care for the poor, to care for the marginalized. And obviously, our response has to be more than giving money. But I don't think it can be less. I don't think it can be ignoring it either. No. The issue requires a more systemic response. That's not an excuse to not engage on an individual level. So the reality is that it's just, it is constant. It's always in your face. And I think there is a sense of, well, for me, there's a sense of hopelessness a lot about it because, Mm -hmm. you know, I did give money this day. I didn't give money this day. Either way, the homelessness persists. And Mm -hmm. it's so much bigger than what I can do. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of us start to really freeze up. Well, there is also questions around 
safety. And when I say that, I don't mean to suggest that interacting with a homeless person is inherently unsafe. Mm -hmm. But I know that if I'm coming home at night by myself, I'm less likely to interact with anybody because I just want to get home, you know, have certainly encountered people on the street yelling obscenities at me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's obviously going to make me feel... And the subway when you can't get away. Right. And, you know, after living here for a while, you realize, like, you kind of become desensitized to things, mm-hmm. people you saying do. weird things or inappropriate things. You just learn to ignore it. But but that does raise a level of feeling unsafe or feeling like, I don't know if I should interact with this person. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly felt that way, um, especially especially on subways when, like I said, it, you can't really get away. Mm-hmm. Like a month ago, a woman kicked me in the stomach. I mean, she was yelling and she just kind of like kicked out and just I was walking by and she caught me. It wasn't like really directed at me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she was just like shouting at everyone on the train. And we all just kind of had to sit there, you know, until we got to the next stop. Mm -hmm. And that kind of situation is just it's very tense. You don't know what to do. And you feel simultaneously guilty for feeling afraid and nervous and also I don't know how in many ways to be what Jesus calls me to be in New York without it becoming a life-consuming I guess it's supposed to be but it feels like you know like it's like if I were Mm -hmm. to be what it feels like Jesus called me to be to the people on the streets in New York City, it feels like that would be something that you would be dedicating your life to, your time to, all of your money to. Like that's how how that's how overwhelming and demanding the problem feels here. I really do think that that is the thing. Like I really do think mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's mm-hmm. like I believe I'm supposed to do this thing that is core to my faith that I don't do very well. When you boil down to it, what you just said is exactly it. Like it feels like living hypocritically every day. And I hear somebody like our guest today, and I think, is that what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? Mm-hmm. Like, not making podcasts and editing a newspaper, <laughs> but actually um, working at a, at a homeless shelter or working for the poor or working as an advocate? I think we should still do the podcast, no matter what you decide. I so, I mean... <laughs> Even if we become like Dorothy Day 4.0. Dorothy Day would have had a podcast, y'all. She would have had a podcast. (laughs) She totally would have had a podcast. Well, I have a feeling that our guests today might actually affirm (laughs) your sense that this could be like a lifelong thing and a whole life thing (laughs) rather than an occasional thing. Today's guest hears these questions about homelessness and gets them from people all of the time. It's an awkward situation to be desperate and to ask for money, right? So maybe that can, you know, let you breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief knowing, okay, this is awkward for both of us. Let's let's get through it together. Kevin Nye is a Fuller Seminary graduate and advocate for homeless people in Los Angeles. Yes, we're fine with the occasional West Coast rep. Our conversation with Kevin is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. And this year, RNS has put together a holiday gift guide. I'll take one witchy stitcher cross-stitch kit, please. 
That's a tug twister. It really is. But you know what we really want this holiday season? Yeah, you do. We want a rating or a review from you, our listeners. It goes a long way to help us keep hosting the conversations that you love. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you and we will reply. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're grateful to be joined by Kevin Nye, an advocate for homeless people in the Los Angeles area, as well as the author of a forthcoming book on the church's response to homelessness. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Hi. Happy to be here. We want to hear a little bit about your story and what really got you into the work that you're doing as an advocate for the homeless in L.A.? Yeah, I came out to Los Angeles uh, to go to seminary mm. at Fuller. I graduated and was not looking for a you know traditional ministry position like in a church. Having been really uh, influenced in seminary toward God's heart for the poor and liberation theologies, I set out looking to do something with my life and with my work that had some sort of impact, some sort of meaningful effect for the mm-hmm. most vulnerable in the city. And Living in Los Angeles, very, very quick and easy to recognize that homelessness is the predominant issue Mm -hmm. that affects the most vulnerable in the city. And so I applied a few places. Uh, A friend was working at one and told me about an opening. And that was over five years ago that I joined there and haven't really looked back. What were some of the messages that you got kind of growing up? in the church about homelessness or the homeless? Do you have any specific memories of how it was taught or encounters with homeless people through the church? Yeah, it's very general. The church I grew up at is located right next to a freeway off-ramp. It was pretty common to see an unhoused person standing there with a sign asking for food and money on my way to church. And I can't say that we talked about that a lot, I don't remember any explicit conversations, but I definitely remember the impression of a posture of compassion, but not necessarily really any in-depth conversation about why homelessness occurs Mm -hmm. or what the steps might be to addressing it beyond the sort of kind of basic service model. I think most Mm -hmm. Christians listening or maybe people of of various faiths would probably find that to be familiar. Like there was often in in many of the churches that I've been part of, there's some kind of homeless outreach or homeless ministry that was very focused on meeting practical needs, uh, maybe a food pantry or donations, that kind of thing, but very little talk about systems beyond that. Why do you think that is? Like, where does that come from where there's this desire to meet an immediate need, but a lack of either a knowledge or a willingness to have a conversation about that, the larger systemic issues? Sure. 
I mean, I think that broadly the church has trouble seeing issues as systemic issues. Mm. I think we kind of have a poverty of imagination on all sorts of things, like even racism, right? Where we see it as, you know, I'm not being racist to an individual and therefore I'm not racist versus systemic racism, right? So there, there is just kind of a general issue that the church has seeing kind of outside individualism and kind of narrow personal interactions. But I also think that, especially with poverty, there's just so many myths out there. And those myths really stand to benefit us and to keep us really at arm's length with people experiencing homelessness and people who are poor in general. Myths and misconceptions, what are some common ones that you encounter a lot around people who are experiencing homelessness? Yeah, I mean, there's so many of them. (laughs) I, I think most of them really boil down to one big myth, and that is that people experiencing homelessness or people who are poor deserve it in mm. some way, right? That they are they are there of their own accord, that they need to be the ones to change their their mindset, their attitude, their disposition in some way to lift themselves out of that situation. It's their fault that they got there, and it's also the, their fault that they remained there. Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes we even hold that implicitly, mm-hmm. right? We may not say outright, yeah, homeless people deserve to be homeless. <laughs> like, you're not going to hear that right. said that explicitly, but it comes out in all of these other ways, like identifying any unhoused person as an addict or language that we use, like bomb or vagrant mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. you know, words that have an unnecessarily negative connotation to them. Those are all kind of micro versions of that macro myth. So for people looking to go beyond the individualistic framework, what would you say is the root cause? And are there things that people who care can do to partake in addressing the root causes? Yeah, I think not only is it harder, that's when it gets political. Mm -hmm. I'm of the belief and the growing belief and Uh, wide belief amongst advocates for people experiencing homelessness that the key to ending homelessness is housing. It seems very intuitive, right? (laughs) Homelessness, giving people a home (laughs) would address that concern. Uh, But for a really long time and really still to this day, there's so much resistance to talking about it as an issue of affordable and accessible housing. But it's been carefully studied. Uh, We know that in cities where housing is more expensive, homelessness is that much higher. Mm-hmm. And in places where cost of living is lower, homelessness is lower, even though they still have all of the other uh, risk factors that you might associate with homelessness, like mental illness, drug use. Some of the things that we say are what causes homelessness. Those all exist amongst people who have housing, right? But it's really access to housing that you can afford or that you can actually stay in um, that that causes and determines whether or not a person is going to be living on the streets. Mm-hmm. Besides affordable housing, what are some of the factors that keep people homeless? Yeah, homelessness really is uh, cyclical and it gets worse the longer you experience it. Mm. We consider chronically homeless as somebody who has been on the streets for more than a year or has experienced a certain number of episodes in a five-year period. We see, you know, mental health issues, drug use, disability. These are all huge barriers to getting off the streets. 
we often tend to see them as reasons why people fall into homelessness, but it's really worth talking about all of those as barriers to getting out of homelessness as well. So Mm -hmm. if you have a mental illness and you're living inside versus have that same mental illness and sleeping outside, your ability to manage the symptoms of that, to stay Mm -hmm. uh, compliant with, with medicine and just your general overall well-being, right? We know that for anyone who has any sort of mental health struggle, I have depression and anxiety, right? Those things get made worse by outside factors, right? Even though I always have them, they're worse at times than others because of the situation around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same is true if you take it up to, you know, paranoid schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, like somebody's ability to manage those when all of the outside factors are they're sleeping outside, they have very little control over their life, they're not able to get a lot of sleep, they don't have access to transportation to get to various appointments, their mental health decompensates a lot mm-hmm. faster. Uh, the same is true of uh, substance use. We see that homelessness causes substance use at least as much as substance use causes homelessness. Mm-hmm. That substance mm-hmm. use is a way of coping with untenable life on the streets. The longer that people do remain unhoused, the harder it is for them to get into housing. Uh, and when you add on top of that criminalization efforts, whether it's you know ticketing folks for setting up a tent on the sidewalk or having a shopping cart or loitering or panhandling, like all these things that we've started to criminalize and are kind of, at least in LA, we're doing, we're starting to go back to that, which is very disappointing. Crimes that are clearly focused on people who are living on the streets. Yes, exactly. Those tickets stack up, they become warrants, they Mm. become incarceration. And every time that that happens, any progress that a person has made toward housing, toward care is basically reset back Mm. to zero. They lose touch with outreach workers. You know, if they're applying for jobs or maybe even they have a job, that's gone, you know, Mm. if they're incarcerated. Um, And it just becomes this very, very cyclical issue that really seems to have no way out. So Roxy's and my encounters with people living on the street, which is a pretty common occurrence Mm -hmm. in New York. And I think it it didn't take long for either of us to realize like that we would be approached on the street regularly. What is the right response? Is there a right (laughs) response? Because I think we, we both feel like we want to, we want to do the right thing. We want to do the loving and helpful thing, but not entirely sure what that looks like. Having thought about this a lot, the advice that I tend to give people is if you know you're going to have those encounters, uh, which if you're living in New York, L.A., or really work in any kind of urban setting, any big city, you're going to have them, is to really think about what you want your response to be ahead of time. Mm. And so there's a few things that you can kind of put in place to help you in those interactions. And granted, they're never going to be perfect. They're never not going to be awkward. Uh, I think it's important to know that they're also awkward for the other person. It's Mm -hmm. an awkward situation to be desperate and to ask for money, right? So maybe that can, you know, let you breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief knowing, okay, this is awkward for both of us. Let's, Let's get through it together. But on top of that, I like to remind folks that in no other big systemic justice issue are we confronted on an almost daily basis with it in the form of a vulnerable person. Mm -hmm. So 
It's important to know that it isn't normal. It shouldn't be normal, even though it is very common. So knowing that, I think, gives us a little bit of grace for ourselves and for the situation. But to do the best that we can in them, I recommend setting some boundaries ahead of time. Um, Knowing that you live in New York, knowing you're going to have these interactions a lot, uh, knowing what are the situations where you are comfortable giving money and what are the ones where you're not. Often when we're making those decisions in the moment, you know, we might be unwittingly making assumptions about whether or not they're being truthful based on race, based on gender, based on how, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, quote unquote, dirty or unkempt they look. Um, Our brains are trying to make a decision in an awkward encounter. Mm -hmm. uh, and We might be doing it a lot for the wrong reasons. Uh, So sort of knowing under these circumstances, I give I say yes, no matter what. And under these, I say no, no matter what. Mm. And whatever those may be, I want them to not be based off of, you know, myths and misconceptions. Uh, So doing that, that personal work and that research is helpful. But I would also say outside of setting boundaries around when you give money, knowing ahead of time, what is my personal response to homelessness in my city or in my neighborhood? Kind of establishing what in what way are you engaging that issue? Uh, Maybe you're doing it in a broad sense, maybe you do community organizing, uh, maybe you support a local nonprofit that you know does good work. Uh, mm-hmm. Having that answer for yourself can really help you in those interactions yeah. to decrease the amount of kind of guilt, shame, and anxiety that that always enter in. I I really appreciate that. And I, I, I like what you said about having a plan ahead of time and working to avoid bias that way as well. I was struck by a sign that someone was holding that I encountered several weeks ago that I have not been able to erase from my mind, which his sign said, I might as well be invisible. And mm. it kind of, it really broke my heart. And I thought about it a lot. Like, I don't want to treat homeless people like they're invisible. But I always wonder how to say no in a way that is respectful and humanizing and doesn't make someone feel invisible. Yeah. I mean, as much as possible, I recommend to people not to pretend like they don't see or hear them. Mm. The phrase that I use the most often is, I'm sorry, I can't. And for me, that phrase, you know, it's apologetic. It's recognizing that, you know, I wish I could give. I recognize your need. I'm not dismissing you. Um, But it's also not going into the reason why I can't. Thank you so much for your time today, Kevin, and Mm -hmm. for helping us have more grace and compassion as we think about homelessness and our neighbors who live on the streets. For listeners who really are ready to move beyond kind of an individualistic care approach Mm -hmm. to something more like advocacy, where do you suggest that they turn? Sure. I definitely recommend often that people get involved in very local politics. All of those kind of down ballot measures, the ones that have letters and numbers attached to them, that when we see them, we're like, ooh, I forgot to look up this one. (laughs) Uh, Those are the ones (laughs) that really make a difference uh, in the lives of people experiencing homelessness and Mm -hmm. the people who are on the margins uh, of that. I tend to look to advocacy groups that I know are doing really good work in the realm of homelessness and take their advice on that. Getting to know who those groups are, they're usually very active on social media, so it costs you almost nothing to at least get that into your 
your daily stream of what you're consuming, right? Mm -hmm. If you have time to get involved in those groups, uh, it can be really helpful. The groups that are actually, you know, providing mutual aid Mm -hmm. to encampments, to people experiencing homelessness who are doing outreach. Um, Those are really great groups to be involved in. Support good nonprofits. um, And that also takes a lot of research, unfortunately. But yeah, really, I think it comes down to changing our imaginations and our perceptions uh, around you know what we see when we see a person experiencing homelessness, when we see encampments. If we can do that, then I really think the rest of it becomes pretty self-evident that we need to support the building of affordable housing, uh, mm-hmm. even if it's going to cost cost us a little in our property value to have it come into our neighborhood. I think we need to support drug treatment. We need to support mental health facilities, ones that, you know, actually help people in a dignified and humane way. It is going to be a wraparound thing to address all these issues, but it really it comes down to affordable and accessible housing where people are. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Roxy, I know that the issue of homelessness really came to the forefront where you live on the Upper West Side during the pandemic. I was reading mm-hmm. news stories about neighborhood mm-hmm. responses to homeless people on the Upper West Side. So what exactly happened? During the pandemic, you know, people weren't staying in hotels. Um, and so... They designated certain hotels in the city to be for homeless people because this was a big issue, right? Like the shelters couldn't house the number of people overnight that they would have pre-pandemic because they're, you know, all of these issues that come along with trying to protect people from getting a Mm -hmm. deadly virus. um, Shelters were not exactly the most safe places for that. So they designated various hotels throughout the city as places where people who are experiencing homelessness could live and stay instead of shelters. And a couple of those were on the Upper West Side. And it caused an uproar, in particular among Upper Mm -hmm. West Side moms um, who had their own Facebook groups and talked a lot about safety, right? Like this was the thing that came up, like our kids aren't safe. There's needles on the street. There's homeless people asking us for money. Will we drop off our kids at school? Like there were all these concerns that always 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 centered Mm -hmm. around safety like whether or not there was actually any real threat it was really like the increased presence of homeless people like made some people there feel a certain way right like yes we want to support homeless people but not in our backyard Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it certainly did change having those hotels up here like there did change the dynamic and nature of the neighborhood a little bit i mean it wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't nearly as crazy as people painted out to be but there was certainly i mean there was certainly a change and you were certainly encountering more people who were clearly experiencing homelessness you encountered them on a much more regular basis we wanted to talk to a fellow new yorker who became central to the conflict on the upper west side last summer and who has also experienced what it's like to live on the streets the shelters are extremely dangerous. These congregate settings are, are horrifically dangerous. Most people that have been to prison describe them as just a step below prison. There's no consideration for the psychological effect 
of having to be fed like an animal. Shams DeBaron rose to national prominence last year as the homeless hero. Now he's become an advocate for affordable housing in the city. Welcome, Shams. I'm glad to be here. So I guess to start, if you could just kind of briefly share a little bit about your story and kind of how you became the homeless hero and at the center of this advocacy effort for homeless on the Upper West Side. I mean, the long short story is I've been a foster child since the age of two. Mm. I grew up in foster homes uh, and around the age of 10, I started experiencing homelessness. By the age of 12, I was permanently discharged into the streets with no safety net. And I had to navigate from that point of view. Everything was not all gloom and doom. So let me just put mm-hmm. that out there. I'm one of the pioneers of hip-hop culture. I helped to develop the culture from the early 70s through the 80s and 90s, etc. Also, I was always an academic star. So despite Mm -hmm. struggle, I was always great in school and etc, etc, and done a lot of impactful things. However, as I started to have children and navigate into adulthood, I struggled with... uh, uh, um, homelessness on and off mm-hmm. and um, just trying to maintain my family and stuff like that. I raised my son since he was a young child, a baby. Um, and I raised him throughout his junior high school and high school years in um, family shelters. Mm-hmm. So I spent a significant amount of time in that experience But then when he aged out, in doing all I can to maintain him, I myself ended up having to experience homelessness as a single adult. Um, That ironically came around the time of COVID. When that happened, I had already started pushing back at the the way things were. It was an extremely hostile environment, unprofessional staff, and the food was absolutely horrific. The food reminded me of descriptions of what the slaves ate during slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was so triggering to me that I started pushing back first about the food in the shelter. We published a um, newsletter. And in that newsletter is where I started. I'm, I'm good at writing. I started writing under my name Shams. But when I wanted to push back, I couldn't push back under that name. Because to complain about conditions and stuff like that, you get retaliated against. Ah. And so I developed a homeless hero as a name that wouldn't be about me complaining for myself, but it would be representative of all of us that was there and all people that experienced in homelessness. And the name, the homeless hero was derived or inspired by Joseph Campbell's book, mm-hmm. a hero with a thousand faces from which we get something called the hero's journey. Right. And, and as a writer, we use that as a template in our storytelling and um, in, in how we tell stories. Mm-hmm. And all of us that are homeless are on this sort of journey. And we encounter mm-hmm. different people and go through different things with the primary goal being getting that key and putting the key in the door and, and walking into your own home. Mm-hmm. That's like the climax. And I right. was like, then after that, once you get the, achieve that major milestone, you can go back and show other people to tell to, the way to do the same thing. So 
the homeless hero was designed to represent not just me and speak for just me, but mm-hmm. it's really to be represent all people. And that's how the name was was born in the first levels of my advocacy. Mm. Shams, it sounds like you have this natural leadership gift and capacity to speak for people who can't speak for themselves. Obviously, you rose to a position of leadership and advocacy during the pandemic when there was so much tension and conflict on the Upper West Side. What do you most want your neighbors to understand about people experiencing homelessness in those neighborhoods? I've never looked at it from the perspective of uh, housed neighbors versus unhoused neighbors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I never took that narrative. Mm-hmm. I I warned before we came to the Upper West Side when we were at the Washington Jefferson Hotel and the press release went out saying that 283 men in recovery that are addicted to drugs and dealing with mental illness are being moved to the Upper West Side, a community that I lived in myself for over 10 years on and off. Mm-hmm. I said, there's going to be problems. There were problems at the Washington Jefferson Hotel in Hell's Kitchen. There's always problems in the Bowery where our shelter was. Mm -hmm. And my contention was, you just putting us from place to place is not going to eliminate people that need a higher level of care. The problem is we don't have services. We're just being warehoused. So no matter where you put us, it's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. When we moved to the Upper West Side, everything that I said would happen, happened Mm. within those first two weeks. I didn't have a problem with the complaints because many of the complaints were valid. They were legitimate complaints. What I had a problem with was the media portrayal. Mm -hmm. The media portrayal was wrong because Mm -hmm. a lot of what they were attributing to the men of the Lucerne in particular was really something that was a street homeless problem, not something that was the behavior of people in the in the Lucerne Hotel, making us look like we were what the New York Post called scum, hmm. others called uh, vermin. Hmm. It was so horrible. And men that were had been through jail, that been through all types of manner of hardship, these men were broken down. Mm-hmm. Many would come to me in tears. There was one guy that is nearly six something, a huge guy. We called him Biggs. And he would come into the group. I get him out there, bring him to the group. And he would break down in uncontrollable tears and say, Shams, this same guy keeps calling me an N-word and I don't want to go back to jail. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is crazy. And now you start to see that people are looking at us in this way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the things that I picked up on as you were talking was, um, you know, you talked about street homelessness and you talked about the difference between that and, and being in a shelter. And I think a lot of listeners probably wouldn't know that that's a difference, you know, but when you think about um the experience of people who are homeless, what are some of the common experiences or common daily challenges that people are facing? That's a good question. So, you know, whether there is a difference between being in the streets and being in a shelter. And I'll tell you this, for me, from my own experience, I was, I felt more dignified and safe in the streets as opposed to being in a shelter. Oh, 
the shelters are extremely mm. dangerous. These congregate settings are, are horrifically dangerous. Most people that have been to prison describe them as just a step below prison. People mm. don't understand the psychological and physical, well, obviously the physical effect, but they're not, there's no consideration for the psychological effect of having to be fed like an animal, like mm. animals get fed better, get pre- treated better. This is in the shelter experience. And so many people who you see on the streets would, uh, they've been through the shelter experience and many choose the streets over mm. the shelter. Myself, I did that because after a while, the shelters became not just that stuff that I just mentioned, but it also became a dangerous environment. Mm. They paroled tons of people from jail, like 40%, put it that way, of the parolees coming from upstate are paroled to um, the shelters. So that's the un. That's a that's an uncomfortable environment, not mm-hmm. because of the parolees, because many of them are really breaking their necks to stay out of trouble. Right. Um, because I describe those shelters as being drug dens. Mm-hmm. I describe mm-hmm. those shelters as being death traps and you're either going to die slow or quick. I mm-hmm. saw people dying every week from overdoses. No one checks the data on deaths. Of from overdose in these shelters, because that would show you that mm-hmm. there's no real, um, these are just places where they warehouse you, but they also are breeding grounds for drugs and other type of abuse. You, there are rapes that go on there. Mm-hmm. So just think of the psychological toll that it has on you when you have to live in fear, you have to sleep with your eyes open, with your clothes on, your shoes on. Uh, because you, if the minute you close your eyes, you can be robbed and wake up and not know who robbed you. Those environments are different. That's the shelter experience. There are no services on site. If you listen to them, to how the city projects themselves, they say that, well, we want to put them close to where they can access services because what it is is most people that need services, they have to travel all throughout the city to obtain those services. It's not like the services are in the shelter. The mm-hmm. shelter is just a warehouse and it's physically mm-hmm. not a good place, but it's also not a good place on your emotional, spiritual, and, and, and mental well-being. So with street homeless, from my personal experience, I decided to go back into the streets because on my park bench, I had my space. Mm-hmm. I figured out my level of security, which was a hundred times safer. Well, let me not, let me try to be a little realistic. (laughs) 95% safer Mm -hmm. than being in a shelter. And Mm -hmm. I felt more dignified. I Mm -hmm. woke up every morning. I went to Planet Fitness. I took a shower, put my clothes in the locker, went to Starbucks. I was able to have a routine that allowed me to stabilize myself. I, I knew the soup kitchens that served better food than the shelter did. So mm-hmm. it was like, I was able to survive better like that on super cold nights. I knew what trains to ride. This is the average home, homeless person that has to find out how to make it and how to do things. The only thing I didn't count on was the depression. Mm. Didn't, I didn't identify it as mental illness. And so in this experience of homelessness, sometimes that can creep up on you and create other issues and left untreated can lead to 
other things like anger that's not being treated. Right. It could lead with it could lead to depression, severe depression without being treated. And you could end up hurting somebody or hurting yourself. Mm-hmm. And that is a lot of what we see among street homeless, unfortunately. And I could have been one of those guys. But the thing with me was that when it got so bad for me, I reached out and said, wait, hold up. I need some help. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I went and got help. And it was through Project Renewal that I was able to stabilize and get better. But my issue there was I go into the recovery center, which was a safe haven. But I walked right into the shelter, which was a drug den. So it was like. My issue then was there's no synergy between the shelter component and the services, you know, Mm. the services component. That sounds really important for there to be open lines of communication for the services and resources to be connected to the shelter system. That is one of the most important things. I've dealt with so many of these people in this last year and change, and I know that I'm effective in addressing, I'm talking about directly impacted people, people with mental illness, people with substance abuse, people coming from prison, people that did 25 years. I'm able to deal with them because first I start with compassion. I start with, I care about you. I don't have all Mm -hmm. the answers. I don't know everything, but I I care about you. Let's just start there. (laughs) Like, like Mm -hmm. I'm not a hostile Mm -hmm. person and I listen to them. And most of what you see me doing, my advocacy is reflection of what Mm -hmm. I get from engaging them because I want to speak not just for myself, but for all of us. And it, and the only way I can do that properly and do justice to us is by engaging them. But I also engage the community. Thank you so much for modeling what it could look like to listen well. Thank you for your leadership um, for modeling that for us so well. Thank you. And I appreciate you so much. And if I can have one final word is Mm -hmm. another important aspect of what we did was involve the faith community. Mm -hmm. We started something called the soulful walking talks. Yes. And those soulful walking talks brought together faith leaders from across the city, many from the Upper West Side to actually engage and and really break bread and just politic we call it having rap sessions with not to with mm-hmm. the directly impacted people like myself from the from the hotels mm-hmm. and many of them there were some who would be in tears but many of them would say look i help the homeless i do this and i do that but i've never been this close and i've never understood it until i sat and talked and and we started doing these soulful walking talks and many of those faith leaders said that they were transformed from that experience of being able to engage us. And the same thing happened with many of the residents, being able to stand and break bread in a, not in a church or a synagogue or a mosque, but just in community. Mm-hmm. They were able to get this spiritual connection and end up going back. And we went from looking at each other and said, yo, man, what you looking at? To... Mm. Hey, brother, how you doing? How's yeah. everything, man? I love you, man. I love you. And that's a whole, that, that's, that has never been my experience in, mm. in the shelters until this experience at the Lucerne. Yeah, that's such an important reminder. And what 
a beautiful description of a community that that was created on the Upper West Side. Um, that's yeah, just such a beautiful vision. So yeah, thank you, thank for, you sharing for sharing that, Shams. Yeah, I think we we get a lot of uh, as you said, we heard a lot about the scandal of it or the uproar of it, and not as much about um, what you're describing, which which sounds much more hopeful than what what we heard a lot of. So thank you for giving us that. Thank you, and I appreciate you for having me. And when you're all broadcasting it, let me know. So if I can share it with my audience, that would be great. Saved by the City is a Religion News Service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks for listening. listening.